It involved throwing up six times and fainting once. So, uh, so yeah, it was um, mentally, I think, the most draining oh, 24 hours of my life. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them, and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products, and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. My guest today is Josh Llewellyn-Jones. Born with cystic fibrosis, Josh has gotten used to being told what he's not capable of, what he can't do, and so he's dedicated his life to proving people wrong. Not only is he an ultra-athlete and international motivational speaker, but he's also a world record holder. In this episode, he tells us the incredible story of how he earned the nickname Million Kilo Man. He explains what it means to defy the odds daily, and he shares inspirational advice for parents of children with cystic fibrosis. I first asked Josh how he's able to use fear as a motivator rather than letting it stop him in his tracks. I think fear to me is is probably used as a a motivator, and I think the reason for, for that is growing up with a what you would call I suppose a terminal disease for which there is no cure is you know well how long have I got left on this on this earth and and what can I achieve in that time so for me reaching my full potential um, is, is somewhat a mission of mine and I think you know constantly sort of waking up and thinking well what can I get out of today and, and what can I achieve this year I suppose is is something that drives me and motivates me you know I listen tomorrow is never promised for anyone so for me personally it's you know if I'm not reaching my full potential I think that's that's something that I would certainly live to regret later on down the line when I'm sure my disease will eventually sort of take over. I loved it when you said tomorrow isn't certain tomorrow isn't certain for any of us and I think sometimes we we take that for granted and defying the odds when you say defying the odds it's not just a slogan is it because it's a way of life when you're when you're forced to face your mortality and I know a particularly profound moment for you was when you were 
lying in a hospital bed at the age of 21. And I'd love you to tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, so, you know, being being a 21-year-old, we were moving house, um, everything was going well for me. I was in the shape of my life, uh, fitness-wise. I was in the gym every day, training as hard as I possibly could. I felt really fit. And as we were moving house, I decided, you know, being into my weightlifting at the time, that I would essentially lift up a a washing machine and carry it into the new house which I thought was a really good idea uh, on my own and when I dropped it onto the kitchen floor I just felt this sort of slight pop in my stomach and and I knew that obviously something wasn't quite right Uh, I didn't you know really know what a hernia was but I'd heard certain stories about how you can get hernias and and I just thought oh it's it's one of those things that people have talked about before so when I lifted my t-shirt up there was this sort of little lump in the in the middle of my stomach and I was pushing it and it was it was relatively painful and the more I pushed it the more painful it became and and in the end I was I was rushed to hospital um I literally I was on the on the floor in the fetal position I couldn't move and rushed to hospital and you know, they did the scans, they did the, all of the, the rel- relative tests, and it became apparent that I had a blocked bowel, which is something that I'd suffered from at birth, um, which they'd sort of successfully operated on at the time. And at about 6pm at night, the um, head surgeon walked in, Dr. Jared Talkington, and he had his team around him and he said, you know, we've done all of the tests, we've We've tried to to move the blockage with obviously you know tablets and and liquids. However, you know nothing's worked. We only have one option left really, and that's to operate. And me being me, I was like, right, okay, let's let's go and, and get on with it. And it was very much one of those moments where I had my family around me, and at that time I was the only one that wasn't too scared. I was just thinking about the task ahead and, and really getting through that moment. And then it wasn't until he said, you know, it might be an idea to, to ring your the rest of your family to come down and, and say goodbye. And and as a 21-year-old confident young man, that, that really hit me, it, it, you know. And I think it wasn't until I sort of kissed my, my parents and, and kissed my brother and sister, um, you know, that I could see that they were in an incredible amount of emotional pain and and I didn't want them to know how scared I, I really was and I think I was sort of mentally holding it together um, as you know as I was re- wheeled wheeled off and I went around the corner and the I knew I was out of sight I just absolutely broke down and, and burst into tears and and the anaesthetist said you know how how did you sort of do that you know how were you able to to not show those emotions in front of your family and and quite simply it was a case of me turning around to her and saying listen you know if I if I die tonight please don't tell them I cried and and please don't tell them I was scared and I think that moment of realization that you know if I could be strong then they'll be sort of less sad in in a sense so yeah, and, and I mean, listen, I, I survived, obviously, after seven and a half, eight hours of, of emergency surgery. I had 21 centimetres of my, my stomach taken out, and I woke up on the operating table with, you know, a, a bag, a colostomy bag, um, 100 staples down the middle of my stomach, and, and a lot of blood and iodine that I could see, and, and an incredible amount of pain. 
and you know over the coming weeks where I was sort of recovering in the ICU department in in Landock Hospital in Cardiff you know it became apparent that I really hadn't achieved everything that I'd set out to and you know I in my head I had so many more things in my life that I wanted to achieve so for me it was right okay well it's time to get your head down and and, and recover from this and make a full recovery back to full fitness and and crack on really um but for the next nine to ten months I had a colostomy bag which mentally was quite damaging to me um you know it certainly damaged my confidence and I had to sort of get over that period of my life but from my perspective it was okay this is going to be reversed one day so for the time being I'm just going to become a bit of a hermit and, and I'm not going to go out too much. I certainly think that you know my mentality I, I grew up very quickly I, I matured very quickly as a 21 year old before then I was your typical immature you could probably say even had the mindset of a teenager at some some stages uh, but that very quickly had a huge impact on my life and thought oh actually I, I better grow up I better do something with my life I better you know I, I better have some sort of vision for, for what I want to achieve in my life and not just sort of dawdle and wander from paycheck to paycheck so I think for me that was the the kind of a, a pivot for for my life in terms of you know what I wanted to do for the cystic fibrosis community, how hard I wanted to push myself from a professional point of view as well as a personal point of view, and it was it was just an eye opener really from to, for me to see, wow, life really is precious, and this disease has the ability to to take control when it wants to, so I better be in the best condition, you know, as much as I possibly can, so when it does decide to to sort of rear its head, I can, I can control it to a certain degree. And if we go back to your childhood, what fear would you say was most prevalent during your younger years? On the whole, I was pretty fearless. You know, I was into motocross riding, I was into snowboarding, I was into sort of some extreme sports and I'd been brought up on motorbikes and and things and I was always chasing the adrenaline and chasing that rush um, because it, it made me feel alive I suppose but the I had a I mean you could call it an irrational fear of heights but yeah it was definitely a, a fear of heights and you know I, I used to go rock jumping in um, in in south of France when we were on holiday and we'd jump into the sea from the sort of the, low, the very very low cliffs sort of I don't know 15 feet 20 feet but I always remember being fearful whilst doing it. So whilst I had that fear, I still I still went ahead and, and carried out the the jump and the task. But I very much I did feel that rush, and I was actually afraid of of roller coasters as a child as well. But no one else kind of knew. I, I kind of kept it to myself because, you know, I didn't ever want to show any weakness. I never wanted to show fear um, in, in that sense because I thought that if I did it would control me and I never wanted anything else to control me other than my own mind so my my dad is a he climbs a lot and he skis a lot and he has done his whole life and he does quite extreme things I mean he's quite old now he's in his late 70s but amazingly he still does it and when I was very young I was skiing with him quite far off piece and I've been climbing and skiing with him since a very young age and we were at quite a height and it was quite rocky and I fell 
all the way from the top to the bottom and it was it was absolutely terrifying and I do really clearly remember that moment and amazingly since then I haven't been afraid of heights because it's almost that exposure to the falling somehow cured that that fear of the height so I don't have that anxiety anymore but I know the it's the other way around for a lot of people and they have a, a, a really terrifying moment like that and then f- for the rest of their life they can't deal with heights and I've been I've been reading about it and some people you know they can't even climb stairs and they can't cross bridges in a car because it's the fear is so so intense I think a lot of the, the time, it's if you can survive something that you're fearful of, you, you almost in, mentally become sort of almost invincible to it. And I think that was that was certainly something that I had in my mind every time I sort of faced a fear. It was, well, if I can get through it, if I can survive this period of fear, then I can survive anything. And it's, it's literally just a, a case of mind over matter. Um, you know, I mean, later on in life, I went on to become a fireman. So I definitely wasn't afraid of heights later on in life once I'd sort of yes, tackled my wow. fears. Um, so it was always sort of going from one opposite, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other. So, you know, I mean, listen, I watch documentaries on, on sort of climbers and free climbers and find it absolutely fascinating. And some of the shots oh, that you too. see... It's just, you know, I'm blown away by them. And I'm literally just sat there thinking I would never in my world, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself afraid of heights now. But some of the the climbs that I see on these documentaries, like that Alex Honnold, um, you know, I just find it fascinating how you can free climb a mountain face like that and and almost not be afraid at all. It just seems Mm. incredible. But Josh, when you were younger... Did you know about your your illness when you were young? Yeah, my parents were always very honest with me. And, you know, you'd go every three months for checkups with the doctor just to do some tests on your lungs and lung function tests and digestive tests and, and everything else. And I think when I was in school, I always hid it from, from everyone because I didn't want to be known as the child with the illness. Very much wanted to be known as, you know, the number one in across many sports, um, despite having an illness. And that was quite, I think, driven by my father as well, who kind of, you know, pushed me um, probably more than anyone from a from a very young age. And I suppose that sort of made it, made me believe that anything was possible. So growing up, I, I was very much into the fundraising. My father was a trustee for the charity at the time, the National CF Charity. So... For me, it was I was exposed to the disease from a young age, um, giving talks at at dinners to raise money and things like that. So, I think all in all, whilst you know today I speak to to parents with children of with the disease, and you know my advice is very much like you know you have to treat each each child completely differently because it's it's not necessarily you know, what they want now, it's how that's going to impact their mindset in the future and their mental health. Because, you know, I talk about this disease as, yes, it's physical, but actually 50% of the disease is very much mental. You know, you're told from a young age, the average life expectancy is 30. And, you know, when you're 16, you go off for tests and and you're told that 99% of males are infertile. And then the results come back and yes, you're infertile. So in the future, you'll need IVF to have a baby. You know, there's all of these things that you have to mentally cope with. 
and especially with the IVF thing, because at 16, you know, that's certainly for me, that was the moment where you start to become interested in the opposite sex. And, you know, I was very much yes into my sport and everything else. But, you know, that was very apparent at that age that my, my mind kind of shifted slightly. So then to be told that you can't have children naturally was was quite a blow because I thought, well, how is this going to impact my relationships when I grow up, um, when I'm a little bit older? How is that woman going to take it? Um, you know, if we get together, do I do I be honest with that from the very beginning or do I hide it first to see how the relationship goes? You know, there, there's all those kind of thoughts that run around in your head and all the while you're thinking, well, I need to just try and be the best that I can be, try and exercise as much as I can in order to stay alive and, and keep breathing. So there's lots of these things that go around in your head and I think it's really important to be really open and honest with with a child about their illness because if you protect too much, then there's obviously the the chance that you know, a lot of things get brushed under the carpet until you're older and then it all comes out and it's a bit of a, like an avalanche effect. It all comes at you at once, which I don't think is is great for anyone. And by doctors, your physical capabilities were constantly compared with what was average for someone your age. And how did that constant comparison impact you? I think... You know, I, I grew up with doctors saying the average life expectancy or, you know, the your lung function results when they come back, you know, they're taken from an average of 100%, which is like, you know, the person of your age, your weight, your height at that moment in time. So I was always compared to someone who was of average health and I hated it because I was thinking, well, why am I being compared to the average Joe Bloggs when I don't want to be the average Joe Bloggs, I want to be better than the average Joe Bloggs. So, you know, my my goal in my mind was always to be a leader and, and to, to almost set a boundary, um, you know, my own boundaries and, and not someone else's. And, and I mean that from a physical and a mental point of view where, you know, when doctors would say to me, you can't go and run cross country for Wales and represent your country because you've got cystic fibrosis. And then, you know, I made it my mission to go and prove them wrong. And, you know, you can't go and climb Kilimanjaro because you've got cystic fibrosis and we don't know what the air is going to be like up there for your lungs. So I made it my mission again to prove them wrong. And and I think that was always this battle to prove people wrong. And whilst, you know, some people rise to the occasion and, and, you know, and some people don't, it was very much in my mind that I was going to be the one that did rise to the occasion and and show children from all over the world that, you know, don't let anyone stop you from doing what you want to achieve in life. And now as an adult, what would you say your fears are? My fears would be more around potential uh, and making sure that, you know, that I, I reach my potential. Obviously, you know, that potential is a word that, that we use quite a lot in all walks of life and you never truly really understand your full potential until you fail. So for me, it's, yes, I've, I've failed many times in training sessions or with certain businesses and things like that, but, you know, I'm almost reaching the point where I'm searching for the ultimate failure. That's really something that 
I've been searching for over the last few years and I've come to realise that I'm I'm very fearful of waking up one day and saying, well, I had my fitness in my 30s to do something that I really wanted to do, but I didn't push myself hard enough to achieve it. I think that's, that's a, a really vivid fear that I have because, you know, I never want to have any regrets. I haven't got any regrets to date and I, I never want to have any. So with a lot of the challenges that I do, they rely on, on me and my hard work because you don't get a lot of luck in this game. And, and whilst a lot of people will be quick to comment to say, oh, aren't you lucky to have your health? You know, they don't see what goes on behind closed doors day in, day out to, to generate this level of health. And, and I think for me personally, it's, it's all about hard work and I've only got myself to blame. So if I don't reach my full potential in my, my last days on, on this planet, it's, it's definitely going to be down to me and, and no one else. And, and I don't want to look back and, and regret not having given it my all. I wonder what exactly is the, is the limit of your potential. Who knows? Who knows? I'm certainly, <laughs> uh, I'm certainly on, a, on a road to, to discover that, you know, one way or another. You know, with the the certain ultra challenges that I do, they you know they take a big toll on your body, and you know you unfortunately you don't have a lot of years at this level doing the things that I do. So, for me personally, it's it's about doing it very quickly and and understanding that that limit very very quickly before you know my body is simply broken. I can't can't do these things anymore. So, who knows? But I'm sure we'll have another chat when I do reach that limit on failure. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And understandably, you, you've mentioned this a bit before that some of your fears have been linked to relationships and given the life limiting aspect of cystic fibrosis. So how do you manage that fear now? Has that, has that sort of changed now or is it still a, a, a fear? I think it's it's not necessarily a fear because I've I've come to learn more about myself and and sort of why I have those fears especially around potential and and things so I think for me personally it's it's more about understanding the true meaning of happiness in, in a way whereas before it was always about sort of chasing world records and and chasing what other people found impressive but it's it's becoming more of a journey where you know I want to achieve things that I find impressive to myself and and give me satisfaction and you know we're living in an age now of where social media is always going to be on the rise you know this this thing isn't going away anytime soon and whilst some people have the fear of not being liked on social media or followed on social media for whatever reason you know, it's it's very much internal for me, um, and and I'm certainly sort of searching for that potential internally, on what's going to give me the biggest smile on my face. You know, obviously with these challenges, you know, I I have suffered in the past from post event depression, and that's a real eye opener to to sort of understand why I go through those feelings and emotions after an event. So for me, it's it's become more about okay, well you know, if I can achieve this, then I'm going to feel great. Not not about myself, but just about the journey. So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, oh, what does it feel like crossing the finish line? 
Whereas my enjoyment really is way before the finish line. My enjoyment is, you know, that comes from the journey of, of actually getting there. So, you know, I've already reached that sort of peak of happiness. And, um, and that's really, you know, so that fear, I wouldn't say it's going away. I would say that it's just, it's changing internally, if that makes sense. So has sport been a way of conquering your fears then? Yeah, definitely. And I think that the biggest thing that I've learned through sport is teamwork and, you know, camaraderie, you know, whatever you want to call it, is is working in a really positive environment around others. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of winning and losing in sport that sets you up for life, you know, and when, when I played sport as a as a school kid. You know, we we won games, we lost games. You know, I lost races as an individual and I won races as an individual. And it really set me up for life in terms of what it was like to lose and come back and what it was like to win and and, and hopefully learn something from the win just as much as I would a loss. And and I think that, you know, to, to say sort of conquering certain sports and, and certainly becoming an athlete, an endurance athlete, it's something that during an event you have to constantly learn, um, you know, about how you're feeling, if your your energy levels are low, if you're you're in a dark, dark place and, you know, you can't see a way out, you know, you've got to have certain triggers to to help you through those moments and, and much like life, really, and, and to understand that there's the bigger picture to, to work towards here. So I think from, from my perspective, I'm really passionate about, about sport and exercise, whilst I understand not everyone loves sport and exercise. Not everyone will love pushing themselves to the extreme. And I'm not condoning what I do to, to everyone else out there, trust me. But I certainly think that there's a big place for sport in our society. And I genuinely think that when people exercise, they generally feel better about themselves and their mental health improves. So we need to be pushing that a lot more, not just conversations that we should have around mental health, but also, you know, let's let's push, even if it's just going for a walk in the outdoors and embracing the, you know, the, the adventure, if you like. And conversations around mental health, you've said that that was one of your most courageous moments in your life coming out about that. Can you tell us more about that? Because I'm sure that was, you know, that is a very brave moment for anyone to do that. I think the the big thing for me was understanding that I had a problem and, you know, and it was a very big problem. And, you know, I'd, I'd brushed a lot of things under the carpet from a mental health point of view, certainly from, you know, my challenges and, and things. I'd, I'd kind of just got my head down and got on with things. And, I think I was I was certainly sort of holding a lot of cards to my chest and feeling that I had to be the strong one in the family and I had to be the strong person for my friends and you know when you've got all your friends family and and other people coming to you for advice on how to be positive all the time you feel like you have to be you know give 100% energy to everyone else and and I think you know one of the quotes that I love and I heard a, a, a little while back is that you can't pour from an empty cup and I definitely sort of had that mental burnout um, and there were a lot of other issues that I had swept under the carpet but when I came to the realization that if I don't sort this out now this is just going to get worse and worse and worse and it's just going to snowball into something that is is quite literally uncontrollable and it's going to take it's going to take my life and you know I got to that moment which was very real you know those those thoughts were very vivid and and 
very close to, to happening. And when, once I realised that, you know, change was needed, I, I opened up to my best friend and I've got to be honest, it was, it was, it was a massive weight off my shoulders because I quickly realised that he'd felt the same years previously and I wasn't on my own. I wasn't the only person in the world feeling like this. I didn't feel like the whole weight of the world was on my shoulders anymore. Just from a simple, even just a five, ten minute conversation that we had, I, it was like a wake-up call. And I thought, wow, there must be so many other people thinking and feeling like this. And when you look at the rate of suicide in, in young people especially, it's it's staggering. And, you know, if only we had somewhere where we could all go and meet to have a have a chat and make you know not necessarily go there with a purpose to to make everyone feel better but just make everyone understand that they're not on their own i think is such a powerful thing and and that's why i've i've kind of turned on social media as well to incorporate the mental health aspect of of life as well as the physical aspect of exercise and, and opening up and, and talking about things is, is the most powerful things that we can do as human beings. Could you tell us a bit about the 6am club um, and how getting up early and exercising can help fight you know, fears and help our mental health? Because for me, I'm not a morning person, but I do try and get up early because it does um, an exercise in the morning, but it doesn't come that naturally for me. Um, I'm more of a night owl and I can get everything done in the evening and in the morning I I can't. So I'd love to hear a bit more about Mm. the 6am club. I started it last year, actually, where I could see the second lockdown was, was proving quite tough for a lot of people out there and it was tough for me as well and and the 6am club was very much something that I'd come up with because I was feeling crap I felt like oh my god I need I need a kick now to get myself into gear because you know this thing seems to be never ending and, and I can't see the end so I thought well if I'm feeling like that other people must be feeling like that what can I do to help and the 6am club came up and it was basically my idea of creating a community of, of people who would exercise together at 6am every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And uh, over the last month or so, I've, I've been a bit lax on it because obviously I've had a lot of personal things going on in my life. So, you know, that is going to be starting up again in a couple of weeks. And it's, it's something that I, I never expected people to embrace, if I'm honest, because it's 6am and, and much like yourself, <laughs> a lot of people don't like mornings. I, for one, with a, with a new beagle puppy, I'm up before 6am every morning anyway. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, these people are really embracing it. And I had some incredible messages from people, you know, saying, you know, how it's genuinely been life changing. They're getting more done in the day. They're being more productive. They feel just better about themselves. And also they're talking to other like-minded individuals after their workouts at 6am. And it's, it's literally a case of, even if it's just a 15 minute, you know, hit session in the morning, um, I follow mine up with a cold shower. I haven't had a warm shower in, in quite a few weeks now, which is actually something new to me. But I can hand on my heart say that I probably won't be having a hot shower now for a long, long time because I just feel invigorated and and genuinely feel alive when I come out of the shower and I'm raring to go. It's, it's a bit of a strange concept at first, but I am 
absolutely sold on the idea that cold showers and cold water therapy is is such a good thing for mental health as well so appreciate you're not a morning person however I would advise even <laughs> if it's in the evening Cressida that you get yourself in a cold shower and, and feel the benefits yeah I will I will try it I mean I'd love to try the 6am club too um do you do that in in Wales or where do you so I do it in Wales but I've been doing it on through the second lockdown I did it on Instagram Oh, great. So I was, I was doing it live on Instagram. So that's going to be starting hopefully again in a couple of a couple of weeks. So that'll be Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays again. Right, Josh. Well, I, I might join because <laughs> I have to I'm say when I you. do, <laughs> when I exercise in the morning and I do really try and do that because it does make me feel so much better, like you were saying, um, you know, it makes me feel more motivated and I just feel like I could kind of take on anything just from doing, you know, half an hour or even 20 minutes of, of exercise. I just think it's, it, it's one of those things that you, you know, you're, you're doing 15, 20 minutes of exercise at 6am in the morning. You can have your shower, you have in your morning coffee or whatever drink you like and then your breakfast. You make it to sort of 10, 30, 11 a.m. and you realise you've got so much more done in the, in the day and you've still got most of the day left. And don't get me wrong, the first sort of, I would say, two weeks is tough. It's, it's hard, you know, you'll be tired for the first two weeks, but it's just your body clock changing. And, and eventually, after two to three weeks, you will adapt to that and it just becomes the norm. Um, and I have to say, you know, I've been far more productive. Now, Josh, you have some great tips for parents of children with cystic fibrosis. I'd love you to share some of those with us. Yeah, so first things first, don't wrap your kids up with cotton wool. Um, I think that is literally the worst thing you can do in terms of, you know, not letting them go and play with their friends in the mud and, and everything else. And I know there's there's sort of bugs out there that, you know, everyone could be scared of um, if they let themselves. But for me, I built up my immune system from going out and playing in all, all weathers and, um, you know, with all, all different types of animals and goodness knows what. I mean, I was playing with chickens in a nappy when I was 18 months old. So, you know, I've been exposed <laughs> to a lot of bad things, but it's built up my immune system. Um, exercise is obviously one of the most important things and one of the tips I would say to parents and I get asked this question quite a lot is how do you get your kids to enjoy exercise if you can get them enjoying an exercise they're more likely to continue it for life but one of the biggest things that I see is is parents telling their kids they have to exercise as part of medication but they don't do the exercise with them so, for example, if you're telling your child they have to exercise four or five times a week, but you're not exercising with them four or five times a week, then why should they do it? So it's 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 having the ability to make that exercise normal for the family and, and, and to actually do that with the family. So for me, it's it's definitely exercise with your kids and have as healthy diet as possible. People with CF obviously need more calories because we don't digest as much as the average person. But it's making sure those calories are, you know, high in protein, high in carbs, and the level of saturated fat is is relatively low. So it used to be chuck a Snickers down their throat and they'll be okay. But it's there's so many other healthy alternatives to that now, and and that's really where we should be aiming for a healthy, balanced diet. But from my perspective, I think if you are treated as normal as possible, then you're potential and your sort of your goals in life are, are truly limitless and you're known as the million kilo man how did you do that 
I don't even know how I did that. Looking back, it was um, something quite mind-boggling. So I set myself a target of getting a world record and I wanted it to be quite staggering for people to understand. So the old world record was to lift 475,000 kilos in 24 hours and uh, I wanted to beat it substantially. So I ended up lifting 1 million kilos in 24 hours, which is... Basically an average of seven, I did 755 kilos every minute on the minute for 22 hours and 11 minutes, which is um, by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I broke my hand two or three weeks before as well. I had stress fractures through my right hand and just had to, to carry on because all of the press and the media were lined up and I didn't want to sort of let anyone down. So uh so it was by far the hardest thing I've ever done, but I got the world record in just over 10 hours. And then I completed, like I said, the million kilo lift in 22 hours and 11 minutes. But it involved throwing up six times and fainting once. So uh, so yeah, it was um, mentally, I think, the most draining oh, 24 God. hours of my life. <laughs> Your mental strength is just amazing, Josh. Wow. Honestly, I, I just, in my head, I'm like, how do you even... No, it was, I think it was just a million kilos is quite hard to, to sort of comprehend. You know, a million is, is, is a number that's quite hard to comprehend. So it's the equivalent of three Boeing 747s. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Wow. 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 But if so anyone we're coming beats to it, the... I'll take my hat off to them and I will happily give them the title. I know. Well, I can't do if they will, Josh, to be honest. Who I'd knows? be amazed if they do. <laughs> These are the, uh, the quickfire questions. Who inspires you the most? Uh, children, CF warriors with cystic fibrosis. What is the book in your life that has given you courage? I'd say Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life. What is something that has improved your life? This could be a habit or a routine. 6am club <laughs> <Love it. laughs> definitely going to be joining Josh not just saying that and any phobias or weird fears I know you said heights but do you have any other weird, weird definitely fears? snakes now I am. I can watch them on TV no problem at all but if there was one next to me I think I'd probably die of a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> and what would you do if you were not afraid be very bored good answer <laughs> Thanks to Josh Llewellyn-Jones for joining me on the podcast. And that's a wrap for season three. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey. If you enjoyed this series and you want to hear more, keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Oli Giyu. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Martin. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.